He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me begin by clarifying a word in the sermon title behind me. Clarifying the word birth. Because birth does not mean the beginning. This is not the beginning of a mission, it is simply the birth of a mission that was given to us. Even though the beginning of life at birth is what is documented on headstones and legal records, life begins before birth. It was true of Jesus, our Savior made incarnate, and it is true of every human since Eden. I'm not a biologist, so I won't declare beyond my knowledge base, but I think that this is not restricted to mammals either. Fowl and reptiles grow before the egg hatches, and seeds germinate before they emerge through the soil. Likewise, Acts chapter 2 is not a brand new phenom. The mission of God for his people after the resurrection had already been conceived in his mind. Jesus prepared his disciples for this before his crucifixion. It's not as if Jesus died, was resurrected, and then as he gathered the disciples, says, Huh, I wonder what we ought to do now. The mission was birthed in Acts, but it had already been conceived in the mind of God. 
Daryl Bach writes that God is the major actor in Luke and Acts. We must remember that while this is called the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Acts of the Apostles according to the plan of God. Patrick Schreiner words the same thought as all earthly action has prior orchestration and plan. The birth of the church on the day of Pentecost was simply the beginning to perform what had already been planned. Because the plan originates with the triune God. Luke focused upon the interactions of God through the person of Christ with the nativity in Luke chapter 2, which we studied uh, last year. But before we get to the nativity in Luke chapter 2, Luke 1 begins with the triune God planning and working to impregnate Mary. In the same way, Acts chapter 2 will introduce the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but Acts chapter 1 starts by reflecting on the work of the Son and His return to the Father. Some of us are afraid of the book of Acts because the Holy Spirit is oftentimes outside of our comfort zone. We hear about healings and wonders and prophecies and tongues, and we think, "Uh, I don't know about that. And so many of us become fearful of what God did through the early church as documented in the book of Acts. But if we remember that what the Holy Spirit enabled was simply carrying out the plan of the same God who sent Jesus for us, we can trust this triune God who has a plan for our eternity and for our years leading up to that eternity. It is undeniable that the majority of this book of Acts describes the kingdom of God being spread. But before the kingdom is spread, Luke has already described the incarnate word of God, which we studied in the Gospel of Luke. And before the word was made flesh, it was conceived in the plan of God. You may recall that I told you several times during our study through the book of Luke that Luke is volume one of a two-volume history. Volume 1 had to do with God working through the Son. Volume 2 involves God's working through the Spirit of God to spread the message of the Son of God. According to what chapter 2, verse 23 labels as God's definite plan, Jesus announced that the anticipated Spirit would baptize. Baptism requires a little bit of explanation because baptism is expressed many different ways in the Christian and in other pagan traditions. 
I believe that when this tells us that John baptized in water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit, by saying your spirit baptism will involve your total identity. Jesus, by going into the water, as Jesus' baptism is described, we get the picture of baptism being all-inclusive. The whole person comes in contact with the water in the baptism of John. And in the same way, the baptism by the Spirit that Jesus prophesies involves the whole person. When you are baptized in the Spirit of God, it affects your academic life. It affects your sports life. It affects your family life, your business life, your social life, your private thought life, your romantic life, all of you. Jesus says, as John totally immersed a person in water, you will be totally immersed in the work of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that baptism does is baptism is a declaration that connects us to death and resurrection. Baptism into any religion carries an image of washing away the previous ideas and the previous beliefs and the previous actions. But baptism in the Christian tradition also adds to that image of washing an identity with death and resurrection. And you would say, well, if Jesus never sinned, how did he die, and how was the baptism of Jesus a picture of resurrection? As Jesus was uniquely fully man and fully God, some identified that Jesus had two wills. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays, not my will, but thine be done. In Jesus' baptism, then, he is making public profession that he is dying to his human will and submitting to, or bringing to life, if you will, his heavenly will. I do not believe at any time that Jesus became divine at his baptism. I do not believe that he sinned before his baptism. But I believe at that moment, the baptism of Jesus, what he is saying is, I've now publicly profess what I've already been doing, and that is, I profess that I am dying to my will, and I am making alive the will of the Father. Now, I am not saying, if you're listening to the podcast, please don't clip those moments without including this. I am not saying that Jesus became divine at his baptism. I am saying he declared his divinity at his baptism. And just as baptism does not save us, but it is a declaration that we are saved, it is this declaration that gets tested by the 40 days in the wilderness, by Satan's three temptations. Jesus says, I'm dying to myself, and I am committing to follow, I am bringing to life the will of the Father, and 
Satan says, did you really mean that? And so he has his three temptations in the 40 days in the wilderness. And it is also this declaration that gets tested on the night of his betrayal. When Jesus again says, not my will, but thine be done. It is a death to human will and a surrender to or a bringing to life of God's will. And water baptism for us declares, I have died to sin and been made alive to Christ because Jesus died and was resurrected. And the Spirit's baptism that Jesus prophesies here in verse 5 of chapter 1 is a declaration that we declare to become identified with His mission. His baptism is a declaration. And then the ascending Son issues orders to those who remain. Craig Keener sets the Jesus story apart from all the other myths. In Greek stories, various heroes ascended to heaven, usually by dying and becoming gods, ergo, or actually through smoke. Their body would be burned on the funeral pyre, and as their smoke went, then somehow they became gods. But Luke says Jesus is different. He did not just ascend in a plume of smoke, but he makes a unique claim that gives Jesus authority. Jesus says, just as I was taken up, I will come again. And this authoritative Christ who says, I'm going up and I'm coming back, he says, in the meantime, I've got something for you to do. Now, I wonder what happens when a player disregards the coach. What happens when we run plans alternative to what the coach has called? Those of you on the floor at the end, I'm proud of you. Where's your guts out? I'm only going to say this one time. All of you have the weekend. Think about whether or not you want to be on this team or not. Under the following condition. What I say when it comes to this basketball team is the law. Absolutely and without discussion. Listen to what he said. Shut up. Shut up, Ray. When 
the coach says, my word is law. If we try to do religion in a way different than the coach has called, we will be just as dejected as those players as they walked into the locker room. But Jesus, the ascending Son of God, gives marching orders. He births a mission for the church. And I would agree with number 12. Come on, guys. Let's do what he says. Not the coach, but our son. But the son, our Christ. See, Moses has... has He passed on his work to Joshua. Elijah passed it on to Elisha. The rabbis and philosophers passed on their will to their disciples. And this model of succession created an occasional, what is called succession narratives. It's passing on a teacher's call upon his students. And Jesus' ascension immediately after the commission of chapter 1, verse 8, leaves believers, us, we are his successors, and we are responsible for the job of world evangelization until his return in the same glorified body that he went away. I don't know about you, but for me, the most frustrating part of the game of basketball is how in the final 60 seconds of a game, it can drag on for minutes. As it seems like after each turnover, there's a timeout. As the coach clarifies, guys, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want to happen. And the players are told, if this happens, then you do that. If this happens, then you do that. The coach very explicitly gives instructions after each turnover. And Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, is the final minute of the final game of the tournament championship. Jesus is saying to his apostles and through them to us, this is my plan. These are my marching orders. And after they receive their marching orders, they respond with a little bit of anxiety. For the anxious squad of apostles reveals that they indeed are fallible. After Jesus gives his marching orders, he sends them to an upper room to wait for him. Now, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. If Jesus spent 40 days um, testifying after the resurrection, plus the three days that he was in a tomb, 50 minus 40 minus 3 leaves... Look at that, math in public... Basically a week, about seven days. They were sent to a prayer meeting for seven days. In one room, day after day. Now, you know, we we tend to think, and this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for us to understand. We tend to think that there is something noble about poverty. There's something honorable about poverty having a lack of wealth. After all, Jesus said he had no place to lay his head. And 
when wealth becomes our attention, there's a problem. But Joseph of Arimathea, his tomb was loaned to Jesus, which most likely indicates Joseph of Arimathea had a certain level of possessions. He wasn't a poor man. And to hold a week-long prayer meeting, including feeding everyone and sleeping accommodations for everyone for seven days, would not have been cheap. Homes that actually had an upper room tended to be the nicer homes of the day. So while we may automatically assume that poverty is honorable, I think it's also important for us to realize that there is nothing wrong with having wealth as long as it is used properly. For someone owned this home that provided a meeting place for the disciples. Someone fed the disciples for the seven days that they were waiting for the day of Pentecost. As long as our wealth does not become an idol, and as long as we use it properly, there is no problem with having wealth. That's the side note. Think about that. Apply it as you may. The problem I see is that the anxious squad of apostles gets ahead of the Holy Spirit. They actually miss, in my understanding, misapplied a scripture. Psalm 109 verse 8 deals with David's enemies. And David says, because they're being mean to me, God, I I pray that you would replace them with someone else. And so this prayer of God, you need to get even with him, all of a sudden becomes in Acts chapter 1, Judas is gone, we need to replace him. Now, in my, in my understanding, this is a, a misapplication of Psalm 109, verse 8, which tells me that even good and godly people can sometimes get things wrong. There, I've just given you a little bit of breathing room. Not that we would seek to do wrong, but if even the disciples, those who had spent three years with Jesus, sometimes got things wrong, we also should not hold ourselves to an expectation of perfection because we realize we can always come to Christ and confess our sins and have them forgiven. I believe there's a misapplication. I believe that they acted before the Spirit moved. They said, hmm, I see a situation. It's up to us to remedy the situation. They threw the lots and they said, all right, Matthias, you win. And there's no indication of the Spirit being at work in that process. See, they they knew what the Scripture said, but I believe they applied this one wrongly. Because knowledge is knowing what to do. Jesus had given them very clear instructions. Wisdom is knowing when to do it. And wisdom says sometimes we wait for the Spirit to prompt us to do something rather than getting ahead of Him and making our own mess. All I have to do is say Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and we know what it means when we get ahead of God's plan. Now it's time for us to take the plan of God in Acts chapter 1. We're going to take it off of the whiteboard. We're going to take it out of the playbook. and It's time to enact it on the field. 
Because Acts chapter 2 is that the performance of the people of God glorifies the triune God. There was a plan from the triune God, and now there is a performance to the glory of this triune God. The performance begins with the power that surprised everyone. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. They were bewildered. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished. Verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. Verse 8 asked, how is it that... that?" That's a question that simply says, my senses of observation don't line up with my assumptions. How is it that this happens because I expected that to happen. And so this power of God is surprising people and their assumptions. We are living today in a very divided time. And last Thursday evening, a beautiful event happened on our own high school football field. As players, coaches, teachers, and fans from many, perhaps all of the churches of our county came together and united for one purpose. And a unified power supersedes all the things that divide and separate us. People have told me how tears were running down their face as they saw the unity of the people of God as the Spirit of God was at work. The power surprises but it is all to god's glory and this thursday we have a similar opportunity regarding our sheriff's office to come together regardless of your political party regardless of your uh, church affiliation we have an opportunity to come together and to allow the spirit of god to demonstrate his power that unifies beyond our division and our separation. But not only did the power surprise, I also see in verses 14 through 41 that there was a proclamation, and this proclamation saved thousands. Now, now let me it the proclamation did not save. It was a proclamation of a person who saved. But that's a little bit too detailed for the slide. So I simply said it was a proclamation that saved thousands. And this is what must be a part of our proclamation. Peter's sermon was rooted in the scriptures. Verses 16 through 21, verses 25 through 28, verses 34 through 35. Peter knew what the word of God said. And so he simply told the people, is it not true that the book says this? Secondly, his sermon was centered on Christ. After Peter said, this is what the book says, Verses 22 through 24 and 31 through 33, Peter lifted up Christ. Christ has to be the center of our proclamation. For we will see next week in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can have religious discussions you can have spiritual talks you can have debates 
with neighbors, with family, with co-workers. That's not gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation is rooted in Scripture and centers on the person of Jesus Christ because His name is the only name that saves. I don't need to know about your favorite athlete, actor, politician. I don't care what E.F. Hutton says. Those of you who are older than 40, you know what I'm talking about. The latest public opinion poll has no bearing on eternity. There are places for discussions and opinions. But when it comes to eternity, we need Jesus. And we need to have a proclamation that is rooted in Scripture and that centers on Jesus and that calls for a response. Jesus, or Peter didn't simply say, this is what happened, do with it what you want. Peter says, this is what happened, and if you have any brain cells that are still alive, you need to respond to this truth. And our proclamation to others needs to say, this is what the Bible says, this is who Christ was and what he did, and give an opportunity to respond to that, not just to leave it out there as a, you do you and I'll do me. And after this power, after this proclamation, I then see that the people of God survived by acting in unity. Two weeks ago, I got to visit a little one-on-one with our ministry partner, Corey Young. And one thing that he said has stuck with me because of the clever way he mused We can never outworld the world. By that, he meant there are some things that our society does that the church of Jesus Christ will never do better than they do. We will never be able to outworld the world. However, it is also true that there are some things that the church of Jesus Christ is called to do that nobody can do better. Especially when you find a church that is doing all of the things in verses 42 through 47. You may find some places in the world that serves more delicious food. But you'll never find a place that offers better fellowship than when brothers and sisters in Christ are in unity. You may find places where the music sounds better or is more emotionally compelling, but you'll never find a place that excels beyond the body of Christ when it comes to needy sinners adoring the God who forgives. See, the uniqueness of the Spirit-empowered cooperation of the people is described in these verses behind me. What we can do better than the world is worship. Notice the words prayer and praising God. What we can do better than the world is instruction in the apostles' teaching. What we can do better than the world is provide fellowship, the breaking of bread together. This is, talks both about the Lord's table and also sharing meals together. 
we can do better than the world when it comes to evangelism. Because the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. And then also notice that they were distributing their proceeds to those who had need. I believe that there is nobody that is better than the Church of Jesus Christ at doing benevolence. For not only do we meet material needs, we also offer the hope of the gospel. And in so doing, we offer a better solution to those who are hurting. You know, since the COVID pandemic, believers have been asking, I don't know if you, if this has crossed your mind, is online church, church, can I do church if my whole church experience is online? Well, online church was not an option during the Spanish flu 114 years ago. But it is an option in our era. So I simply ask you to review those five things I just gave us. Which of these five can you do in isolation? Can you pray and praise with other believers? Can you be instructed and can you instruct others in the apostles' teaching by yourself? Can you enjoy the fellowship of being with brothers and sisters in your living room wearing your bathroom? Can you participate in evangelism in your living room? And can you serve the needs of people by watching an online service? Notice the first part of verse 44 of chapter 2. For they were together. One thing that we can do better than the world is to be together. We are together in body as closeness, and we are together in body in our spirit and in our unity. See, the mission was given by the living word of God to those who were in the kingdom of God, who were about to carry out the definite plan of God. And Peter gives one example of what communicating this mission looks like. But now go back and look. Chapter 1, the first 11 verses, and the last 6 verses of chapter 2 that bookend Peter's sermon. Before and after Peter's sermon, we have a unique reality. This unique reality is that every single pronoun in those sections is plural. Jesus did not give the mission to Peter. It was given to those who were gathered. And that, and that mission did not pass down to the pastor on the platform. It has passed down to all who call themselves followers of Christ. My vision is not that people would hear my sermons. I don't want to add to my number the likes, shares, friends, or followers of my social media are not the measure of a good pastor. As we embrace the mission of making disciples 
by each of us exercising our spiritual gifts in unity with one another, then the Lord will add to our number, according to His timing, those who are being saved. We normally sing a song after communion as a testimony to our unity in Christ. And today I want us to sing that same song. But it's, today I want you to think of it a little bit differently. Don't think of this song as a testimony of how, it, how good it feels to be a part of the body. But think about this song in terms of we as a body working together to carry out the mission of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God because us working together in worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service will cause God to add, not to my number, but to our number, those who are being saved. Stand with me as we sing together as a song of testimony, as a song of resolve and proclamation.